My name is Ali Iman, and I am in Long Beach, California, in Southern California. And you're a professor of history? Yes, I'm a professor of history, mostly Soviet Central Asia. Mm -hmm. And how are things in Long Beach, California? Well, Long Beach has the, I think, largest number of cases. In, we are in Los Angeles County. Even though we are our own city uh, and we all have a, our own mayor and everything else, but we, I think, we have the largest uh, number of cases. Uh, although, you know, overall, I think we had twenty some deaths. But um, you know, it's uh, what is the population less than half a million, so it's pretty. Um, but, you know, California closed, uh, you know, the shelter-in-place <clears throat> order came early. So I think California is doing better than other places so far. Yeah, and, and you've been in, it was a shelter-in-place order, I think it was March the 20th. So that's, I guess that's a month. How does it feel to you at this point? It uh, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, it's of course uh, not necessarily, you know, fun. Obviously, uh, you know, but because it's a beach town, you know, a couple of weekends ago before Easter, you know, one weekend everybody was on the beach playing volleyball and this and that. So they finally close the beaches after that so you know it streets are empty um i have a a small very small farmers market across from my house so i do all my shopping there even though there are like only four or five uh, stalls um so I haven't been to a grocery store for probably a month and a half, maybe more. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's very calm, very quiet. Um, but when I go for a walk, there are people out there and people are all wearing masks now. Right, right. Uh, you know. People try to <laughs> we are away we are away from you and when you walk by. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you um, about your your teaching. I mean, how how has that? Well, that's this is um, I have an unusual situation. I'm in an unusual situation because I'm on sabbatical, and so. In a way, it's the best time to be on sabbatical because I didn't have to deal with the, you know, switching to online teaching. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, I have really hard time concentrating on my writing uh, because of all this. So I feel like I'm wasting my sabbatical in a way. But you don't know. I mean, we'll see how it goes. But all my colleagues are teaching online, mm -hmm. and you know, Zoom is probably rolling in money now. So, yeah, so that's where they are. It has lots of glitches, problems, but overall, I think it's working. Yeah. 
Um, when you see that you're finding it difficult to concentrate, why do you think that is? I don't know. You know, you know how writing is. It's you really need to focus. And I sit down writing, and I'm distracted. You know, with thoughts, and you know, I'm usually an optimistic person, so I'm not really depressed or anything. But it's like I don't really want to write. <laughs> at this point. So I'm really forcing myself to do so. And you know. what, what are you, what are you working on? I'm working on my second book on, uh, um, um, second half of the Soviet period in Kyrgyzstan. It's like a cultural history on theater, especially the four, four actors, four actresses. And, and what was the, what was the, what was their significance? Well, they were the f really first generation of uh, Western sort of modern theater. And the significance is they all came from a small, one small town. So by coincidence, I guess. But um, so they are sort of the first generation of Soviet actresses. One is actually an opera singer. And the other three are actresses. So they sort of established, you know, what theater was basically. Yeah. And then they also acted in movies. To me, they <clears throat> are really significant because they were sort of, you know, <clears throat> breaking all these social norms, women being on stage or on the screen. You know, they are, these are Muslim women. And uh, also, um, you know, acting in Russian. And so they sort of established uh, how to do, how to be an actor on Soviet stage and cinema. Do you want to tell me a bit more about that? Like, Yeah, it was just a coincidence when I was doing <clears throat> research on my first project, which was on... Soviet Houses of Culture. A house of Culture is, you know, Soviets set up these um, club-like, you know, community centers um, in the late 20s, well, in the 20s, and where they would introduce, of course, Marxist-Leninist ideology, but they would also teach theater, you know, teach about music and, you know, arts and sports and things like that. So um, they were, in addition to, you know, a schooling, and this was mostly for adults. And so there was gathering places where they would read newspapers and novels and things like that. So <clears throat> these four young girls at that time, <clears throat> one was born in 19... Uh, 17, she's the one, Sabira Kimshelieva, she's the one who died last. The other three died before her, even though they were younger than her. Anyway, so I, she was the only one I was able to interview. And, um, and uh, so I realized there's, there's something about, you know, um, a womanhood uh in a muslim nomadic society and soviet project of modernity so 
so my first book mentions them but in just one chapter but i decided with the university of pittsburgh presses editors that this should be a second book so i am actually making the second book more of a illustrated book not quite a graphic history but i have a young artist uh, in kyrgyzstan who's drawing uh you know some making some drawings so each chapter will have some drawings so i'm hoping that it will be a book to be assigned in you know classes what kinds of material would typically be performed yeah they had uh, two different kinds of theaters in kyrgyzstan like most you know non-russian republics they would have one theater that would be russian theater um and mostly russian and uh western playwrights plays and then they would also have a national theater so in kyrgyzstan it was called kyrgyz national theater and they would they would stage they staged um um you know central asian and kyrgyz playwrights plays so um so chingiz aitmatov the kyrgyz author uh, many of his um novellas were turned into uh plays so these women became because he i don't know if you read his work but his work um always has female leads uh who are quite interesting powerful or you know various different roles so these women made his work even more prominent yeah so you know why women because i think in the soviet project you know it was a they targeted muslim women to be liberated from the old ways so <clears throat> what's fascinating about these four women is that they took the project and made it their own and they advanced in many ways and became quite important figures so and, and do you, do you um are there people today who are who are acting women today who are acting who would see them as having been these trailblazers yes yes that's all the interviews i've carried out were you know as soon as i say which in Kyrgyz means four daughters of Teküldüş, which is the town's name. Now it's just a neighborhood in Bishkek, but um, they immediately recognize, of course, especially if they are they're in the field, theater or film, they really know it, but they are also household names. I mean, the young generation, maybe in their, you know, 20s or younger, might not, but they watch tv they also see the movies from that period sometimes and so they might not know them but they know what, yeah what's a what's it i mean this is 
hard for you to answer, but like, what's a typical storyline? Like, I have no conception of what we're talking about in terms of the actual. Yeah, I mean, uh, are they domestic? Are they domestic with political overtones? How is it? Yeah, no, is it so it's you know the genre of Soviet realism, of course. So he was uh, Cengiz Aitmatov was uh, one of the Soviet realist authors. So it's about you know. Basically, uh, you know, he towed the line, Soviet line, in many ways, but he was so, such a good author and creative individual that he could be critical of the Soviet period without the, the uh, authorities realizing it. So um, he's really skillful at that. And so... His most famous one is called Jamila. And, you know, it's about a young woman whose, um, you know, husband is, this is a during the war, Second World War, as they called Great Patriotic War. And so her, her uh, environment, when all the men are, most men are gone to war and she's in the uh, in her village and her relationship with her family, her mother-in-law and all that. So, but it's, the, you know, many of his books have these female heroes or heroines who are quite intriguing. I mean, he wrote, writes a lot about women because I think he, he he was raised by his grandmother and his mother, of course, but also he, she had this very influential um, aunt and her father was purged during Stalin era. And so he has a special relationship with women and really values women, I think. So it's really interesting that there's that connection with these actresses and Aitmato's stories. So how close are you to finishing? Oh, not anywhere close. I'm just, you know, I have all the research done. It's just the writing part. You know, I mean, the first book, I it was easier because it was a pretty complete dissertation but it wasn't a typical dissertation that was just finished to be finished I had an advisor who was very you know it was a perfectionist she delayed me six months before I could defend it so at the end the book was quite ready I mean I had to make many changes but still so this one is from scratch so I'm having really difficult time and also you know as a man writing about women i still have to catch up i keep constantly having to catch up with women's history gender history and things like that so so that i don't you know portray you know women from just my own point of view but in a sort of larger context so I guess um, I, I could understand the 
difficulty of concentrating at a time like this, and I'm I'm wondering a bit more about where that's coming from. I mean, um, <laughs> I, I guess it's Im- impossible to ignore the national context in which you're living, even though you're in a state that has a massive amount of economic independence. Right. Yeah, California, you know, what is it? It's one of the richest, if it was an, if were, if it were an independent country, probably has one of the best economies in the world. And, uh, but at the same time, it's a state that has huge numbers of homeless and also quite a bit of poverty in the sort of inland parts of the state. So it's really a, um, a place that is full of contradictions um, and a really large Latino Hispanic population that, you know, um, are going, are disproportionately suffering during this period. Um, so, yeah, it's somewhat of a reflection of the general American population, but it also is unique in so many ways. Like my university, California State University in Long Beach, is 40-some percent Hispanic and Latino. So, um, and mostly students who are first in their families to go to college. Um, yeah, for example, many of them are food insecure. So we just raised, I think, $100,000 or something like that just to feed our students from our food um, pantry. Yeah, and I guess that um, there is a percentage of the population that we're talking about who would be undocumented as well. Yeah. So they're not eligible for federal help in any in any way, really, right, right. Right. Although the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, announced that there will be some help for the undocumented. What's your sense of how he has handled things? Because you were, I think California was nearly the first state to go into lockdown, right. as they call it. It was the first state, I think. And um, San Francisco was the first city, uh, so the the cases and death rates are much smaller there, Northern mm-hmm. California. So Los Angeles followed suit, but it was a little bit late. But Newsom has been really good, and also the mayor of L.A., um, Eric Garcetti, is pretty good. And our mayor is this young man who is uh, also in Long Beach, fantastic. He's been really on top of things. And the best part is that it's really transparent. So we get on our cell phones, our email everywhere, daily updates in detail. They just opened up um, three new test centers and uh yeah so it's they i think they're doing their best one of the imponderables about all this is is what 
things look like as we emerge from it, right? And um, what's that going to be like? <laughs> I'm going to ask you that. Give me a, a give me a sketch of how you see things. Well, <laughs> you know, economically, it's going to be really rough. I mean, I am worried about potential violence. And I mean, if you have this many people who are unemployed, trying to feed their children, you know, what's going to happen if they don't really get support? And, you know, Trump administration has been lousy at both corresponding and also, you know, showing any empathy, especially President Trump. So, you know, so there's 22 million unemployed have reported over the last month, I believe. Right. right. And it's going to be, you know, probably doubling that. And so um, somebody said it's equal to everyone who is eligible to work in 21 states or something like that. So it's crazy. Half of the country, basically, countries working people. But, uh, well, the... The strange thing is, of course, you know, in my university, we have a union and union is on top of everything because everybody's worried about losing their jobs and things like that. Um, And we were mostly worried about lecturers who are, you know, not tenured. So they're usually on one or three year or five year contracts. So we were worried about losing them. But it turns out most students in this area are now not applying anywhere else. So, I mean, most students want to stay home, close to home anyway. And also it's California state system is the cheaper option as opposed to UC system. So as a result, people are, you know, making alterations to their future plans, like where do I go to college and do I stay near home, near my home or family? So they're expecting huge ap- number of applications. And we already hit, I think, 90-some thousand last year, and we can only take at most 10,000 students. So, So that's the strange, you know... I don't know if I want to say upside or basically, you know, less depressing news. If I say, how will things be different? I guess I'm I'm thinking that it's it's like, okay, next week people come out of lockdown and everything's transformed. And it, of course, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be, it's going to be this kind of muddled, cobbled together series of events over a long, long period, I I, presume, right. Right? I don't think we'll ever go back to what we consider normal, probably for a generation, maybe. <clears throat> because even if they find a, a vaccine, <clears throat> you know, we don't know how safe everything will be. And then as, as contagious as this disease is, you know, it's it's really hard to feel safe. So people are going to be very cautious. I mean, they're talking about in California, 
even if you open restaurants and places like that, people will have to wear masks. They are going to have to have like disposable menus. You know, there will be half of the tables in each restaurant so people can sit apart from each other. So, yeah, it's not going to look anything like what it did before. Trying to understand the scale of this is mind-boggling for me, but I'm, I'm thinking about your professional background, right? And you are a specialist in the experience of a country like Kyrgyzstan, which went through extraordinary changes, as did uh, all the former Soviet republics. I mean, are there things to be learned there? I mean, Yeah, one thing I would say is how quickly people adapt, you know. And so even though governments always are well behind people to change things, people themselves in their everyday lives, they are really amazingly quick to, you know, move into a new lifestyle. So I think people are going to be innovative. It's what I'm worried about is the governments, you know, all around the world trying to sort of, you know, um, know what to do. And, uh, you know, that's the most worrisome part. So from the experience of the Soviet Union, we see the same thing. You know, many of these former Soviet states are still failing to, you know, make meaningful changes to make people's lives better. And and then there's the the question of what happens when you have a, a chaotic government, right, or an authoritarian government, or I, I mean. I guess what I'm what I'm kind of grasping towards in the dark here is is some idea of how to make sense of the the authoritarian instincts of governments, right? Even even supposedly liberal governments like you know say Australia, right? So, um, anyone who's listened to any of the other episodes in this podcast will know that I'm kind of repeatedly kind of expressing my anxiety about how how much power we are ceding to state apparatuses of, you know, the police and powers of surveillance and um, these kinds of things. And if you have a, if you have a malign presence in the government, then that takes on a whole other dimension, you know? Right. I mean, look at Turkey, you know, so at once it used to be the, Everybody used to say the only, you know, democratic Muslim country in the world. You know, look where they are now. Where where are they now? How would you characterize where they are now? Well, you know, after this, just this week, they are releasing lots of prisoners because of the virus. Yet they are keeping all the uh, journalists in jail. So it's really not good. I mean, it, there is no democracy there and anymore. 
and no matter how much the opposition is trying to expose all this, nothing's changing. It seems to be getting worse and worse. I mean, it's it's a great opportunity for any um, authoritarian or any any government with bad intentions, I guess. Sure. Look at Hungary, you know, Orban government already establishing stronger authoritarian tendencies. And yeah, I'm fearful of that. Not only in, you know, these places, but even in the U.S. Oh, absolutely in the U.S., yeah. I mean, you heard Trump saying he has total control of everything, only to backtrack day after, you know. It's like he thinks maybe he's a king. I don't know. But luckily, U.S. US system won't allow it. But I don't know for how long if this kind of... Um, you know, especially if the economy is hit hard, I'm not sure, you know, how to, how people will uh, trust the government to make things better when they couldn't really make things better during this pandemic. Yeah. Um, what, what do you know about what's happening in Kyrgyzstan? Well, I just looked today. Kyrgyzstan has very few cases, but it probably has something to do with testing. And uh, there are a few deaths. I mean, it's a smaller population, um, smaller than some states in the U.S. And uh, But I haven't really closely been following how successful they are in terms of, you know, uh, I mean, I know that they closed, you know, they have a shelter in place uh, order, but, and I've seen photographs of empty boulevards in Bishkek and other places. So at least in the big cities, probably people are following it. Um, yeah. I mean, I know that uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan has large numbers, larger numbers of cases, but the populations are also larger. So, yeah, I mean, I worry about Kyrgyzstan because it's, as you know, it nobody needed a visa to get to Kyrgyzstan until recently. So whenever I, in the last five years, whenever I flew there, flew into Kyrgyzstan, the plane would be full of foreigners, you know, Europeans mostly and from all over the world. So it is a, you know, open society in that way. So if this virus is really spreading through travel, I think it it's really vulnerable to that. Well, thank you for taking the time to come in on your perspective on things. Sure. Be, being honest, I, I struggle to make sense of so much of what's going on. So I, I feel like I'm fumbling about in the dark, even sometimes with what to ask people, right? That doesn't usually happen for me. 
I, I usually get completely absorbed in a conversation, and I, and I, I guess the the parameters are so strange, and there's there's so many different fronts on which there are reasons for anxiety and reasons for concern. That I mean, um, right? I think you know I'm preparing an oral history course for the spring semester. Um, next coming spring semester and I was thinking about you know an oral history class specifically on the pandemic and you know the consequences and people's experiences I was thinking about the same thing you know what do I ask other than saying you know how did you deal with it and how did your family deal with it did you lose anyone and things like that so and and what have you been coming up with? Maybe I can steal your. Yeah, I, mean, I am ideas. thinking. You know, asking really personal questions. You know, did it change your everyday habits? And what did you do? How did you communicate with people? You know, did you lose anyone? Do you want to talk about those losses? Mm -hmm. Are you are you missing personal contact? Well, you know, thanks to. Zoom and all this, you know, um, technolo technology, um, I am talking to, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a true extrovert. So I thought it would be really hard for me, but I am always on the phone or on my, you know, the computer or something, seeing people or talking to people. So that's really good. It's not the same thing, of course, as, you know, face-to-face -face interactions, but so, uh, you know, so that's makes it less difficult. Um, uh, and, you know, my mom is an 87 year old, you know, in, in Turkey, in Bursa. And, but I talk to her every day on FaceTime. So even if it's five minutes or longer, Sometimes, so we see each other, so it's less. And same with my brother and my niece is in London. So, um, so, and but lots of friends here who are interested in you know chatting. And we have a little book club now. We are reading a book called Sonora, and so we're going to discuss that. Um, yeah, and I did pick up a new habit a new uh, skill I learned to knit so I'm one of those few men who knit so I am really happy that I did that because it really is almost addictive and uh, is it distracting you from your sabbatical work yes <laughs> from your writing is that one of the yeah, many distractions yeah right you'll have hipster cred though right hipsters old knit. I guess so I guess so yeah I learned from this one book uh, by a British guy, and uh, so it's called Guys Knit. So <laughs> that's right. I left it. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I still am too. Um, I don't want to say much about too embarrassed to knit in public, but I'm gonna start doing that. Maybe take it, take my knitting to the department meetings when we start, if we ever start again in person. <laughs> How's your mom making? What's your mom making of it all? In she's she's an amazing 
optimist, you know. I mean, she's not an optimist when it comes to politics in Turkey, but she's in she's a pretty sunny person and self-sufficient, you know, she lives alone. She cooks and and she's also like me or I'm like her more rather um very extroverted, so she's always on the phone with her friends. She has lots of young friends, so that's really nice that they call her. But she gets her food delivered, you know, from there's a grocery store nearby or small store. They deliver even twice a day sometimes, her newspaper and things like that. But we had to convince her not, not to continue with her cleaning lady. So that was hard to convince her. But she says she's cleaning herself now, <laughs> cleaning her place herself. So that's probably good because she moves around that way. But and yeah, I I just I, I was wondering about um, not to be not to sound trite, but like if you think about kind of the things that older people have been through, they have such a um they have a big chunk more of life experience and what are the things that we can learn from that from their experiences because they've been through different transformations maybe not like this but right right you know well i mean she she lived through i mean turkey wasn't in the second world war but they had wartime economy and everything so she was a kid i mean she was born in 1933 so um <clears throat> so she was saying i said to her about something about how all these people are dying alone and they can't even see their families and her response was <laughs> so pragmatic in a way almost you know harsh she goes well lots of people die in at, in war by themselves she said, you know, this is not something new. And <clears throat> so it's like, well, it's tough, but get over it type of attitude. And I think, um, you know, like you say, lots of, they, they've seen so much and that they, I think maybe put it in perspective better than younger people. I mean, although she does say she feels like she, we are living in a, you know, uh, Stephen King novel or film. That so, would be the stand she's thinking of, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, Ali, thank you for taking the time to, to chat. It's my pleasure. <laughs>